Uh, before we get started on today's show, I want to introduce uh, Haley Otten. She was our multimedia director for the past year, and now she is one half of the incoming Editors-in-Chief. Haley, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a little overdue, that's for sure. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm glad to have you here now, even on this last episode. But I wanted to ask you most importantly uh, about what are your plans for next year? Yeah, well, this past year was fantastic. And, you know, I haven't I haven't been here half as long as Jasmine has. Um, but I still feel like I've learned a lot over the past year and especially about the fulcrum itself and kind of just how I want to go into next year and the things that we want to do. Um, and the people who work here too, they make me excited to, you know, see us all through into the next year. That's for sure. Um, and I guess I'm just, I'm confident that next year will be just as great. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, not only being a part of that again, but also a part of leading us through it. Well, is there anything else that you want to say, final words or special message? No, just that I'm super grateful for the opportunity that everyone who was a part of the election gave us. And I'm looking forward to next year. Awesome. Well, uh, it's been awesome working with you this year, and I can't wait to see what next year has in store. Thank you, Damien. Right back at you. Welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north, on the Great Turtle Island. Well, it's been one heck of a run. This is our 15th and final episode. I must admit we had a bit of a hiccup between this episode and our last one. That happened because some of us here have different reading weeks, and so the onus is definitely on me. But coming back now, we came to the stunning realization that the year has gone by where students at a student publication and our contracts only really span the year. So that brings us right here to now. We're at the end. It's been an amazing journey right now. We do not know what the future holds. Our outgoing editor-in-chief, Charlie Dutil, is the one who thought of this podcast first, and so he should take the credit. He also thought of adding a science section to the paper, and Emma Williams came on board and did a damn good job with that. Uh, that section did exist the year before, but what she's done with it is taken it to a whole new level. Right now, we do not know what next year looks like exactly. But we are happy to say that the Fulcrum Radio Show is getting a spinoff. The Fulcrum Science Show is going to debut soon. I'm very excited about that, and we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. This has been a really fun ride for me. We met so many amazing people. But the show isn't over yet. We've got a lot to cover still and much more work to do. This is a time where hate is alive and well. We've seen firsthand in Canada's capital in recent times during the illegal truck convoy occupation 
that took place in downtown. There were many bad flags being waved. We saw Nazi flags, Confederate flags, those yellow don't tread on me's. And of course, rather oddly, or maybe rather fittingly, the American flag, as well as flags that said Trump 2024. A complex but comparable reflection of the January 6th insurrection, which took place in the United States. This is why it's important to pay attention to things that are happening in seemingly other places. Presently, in Texas, long-standing laws put in place after the Roe v. Wade case, which ruled that criminalizing abortion was a violation of a woman's constitutional right of privacy and infringed on their liberties, have just been struck down, forcing many women to go underground, or for the ones who can afford it, go to other states for the procedures. Now, another worrying hate movement. This one in Florida. The Parental Rights and Education Act, or it's more widely known, the Don't Say Gay Bill. Supporters of the bill say it would give parents greater control over their child's education. Legal experts say the bill is shrouded with hate, vilifying LGBT people and opening the door for teachers to get sued just by talking about them. And that brings us to our feature interview. Today on the show, we have an interview with Christopher Lambert. Chris is an LGBT children's author based out of Orlando. His book series, The Blue Balloon, draws inspiration from his own life. And he says this bill is trying to cover up LGBT children and cut them off from the access and support that they need. And Emma Williams, who is finally and well-deservingly about to get her own show, is here in conversation with Sarah Dolson, a PhD candidate at the University of Ottawa who has been studying rove beetles. Emma dives deep into the research that led Sarah Dolson onto Costa Rican volcanoes in her efforts to track the bugs. But first, it's time for headlines. Today reading headlines, we have Mariana Gomez and Sophie Long. Welcome to the broadcast. Congratulations to Haley Otten and Jasmine McKnight, who were unanimously elected on March 11th, to be the Fulcrum's next co-editors-in-chief. They will lead the Fulcrum's 83rd volume and will take office on May 1st. McKnight is a Fulcrum veteran, first serving as a contributor and freelancer in 2018 and 2019. In 2019, she was hired to be the Fulcrum's associate sports editor, and for the last two volumes, she has served as sports editor. She is the second EIC in a row to have served as sports editor before taking office. Current editor-in-chief, Charlie Dutil, was previously the Fulcrum sports editor. Otten is relatively new to the Fulcrum. She was a rookie on this year's editorial board, but was a very reliable and creative multimedia editor, playing a crucial role in the Fulcrum's return to printing weekly covers. Otten and McKnight have known each other since their frosh week back in September of 2018. They will be the first co-EICs in Fulcrum history. The results of the UOSU general elections were announced on March 12th. 
Armand Kapar, who was presently the union's advocacy commissioner, was elected as its new president. Replacing him as advocacy commissioner is current IPPSA president Chelsea Lynn Russell. They were elected with 86.3% of the vote. All three incumbents running for re-election were re-elected. Sana Al-Mansour will serve for second term as equity commissioner. Sak Flaho, his second as clubs and services commissioner. And finally, Nora Sawadogo defeated Ethan Kudneys to retain her role as operations commissioner. In the race to be the UOSU's next student life commissioner, Eric Atkinson edged out Ricardo Saikali by a little more than 250 votes. On the Board of Governors' side, Jessica Chita defeated former UOSU Clubs and Services Commissioner Amina El Himri and four other candidates to become the BOG's new undergraduate student representative. There were also three referendum questions. Only one of them was endorsed by the student body. Students approved of a new ancillary fee to fund online mental health and wellness portal compass. Undergraduate students rejected the fee to join the Ontario Undergraduate Students Alliance and the new proposed legal support services fee. The University of Ottawa has announced it will not change its policies when it comes to mandatory vaccination and the use of masks on campus. The university said in a statement that it intends to keep the current guidelines until at least April 30th. Proof of vaccination requirements were lifted by the province on March 1st. In addition, mask mandates are set to expire on March 21st, with all restrictions likely to be lifted by the end of April. After the violent events of the piano game after party on Russell Avenue this fall, the Ottawa Police Service has issued a warning ahead of the upcoming St. Patrick's Day celebrations taking place in Sandy Hill this weekend. The written message delivered to residents overviews the plans that are being put in place to ensure the safety of students and residents throughout the weekend. This will include officers monitoring St. Patrick's Day activities to ensure safe and law-abiding behavior. The department will be placing a special focus on offenses against the Liquor License Act. According to the Ontario government, this prohibits individuals from selling or offering liquor without the authority of a license or permit to sell. Property owners in Sandy Hill also have the option to allow officers to ensure the Trespass to Property Act in advance. This allows officers to penalize partygoers for spilling into residents' premises during the celebrations. Finally, the notice includes with the Ottawa Police providing a reminder to celebrate responsibly by only driving sober. It suggests that those who plan to drink should think about having a designated driver, calling an Uber, taking public transit, or staying overnight. A study produced by University of Ottawa professor Rick Burnett has found that, around the world, there are 8 million excess deaths per year that are related to high levels of air pollution. This is about the same number of deaths that are attributed to tobacco every year. The International Film Festival of Ottawa opened last week with its first screening on March 9th. The festival showcases 27 of this year's best feature films, plus 27 new Canadian short films, special programs, and filmmaker talks. This is the festival's first in-person edition, as the 2020 edition was cancelled a couple of days before its opening due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and the 2021st edition was held fully online. Movies are currently being screened at theatres across the city, and will be until the end of the festival on March 20th. For more information and showtimes, head to the IFFO's website. In Florida right now, there is a strong movement by a heavily financed bill, known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. This bill would penalize any instructor or authority figure that tries to teach children about sexual orientation and identity. Christopher Lambert is an LGBT children's author of the Blue Balloon book series. 
He says the Don't Say Gay bill actually hurts children who are LGBT. I spoke with him about his book series, the importance of representation, and the harm this bill will bring to LGBT children. Well, Chris, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I was wondering if you could tell me about the Blue Balloon series. So the Blue Balloon series is a series of children's books that I wrote, um, which I'm trying to teach children um, very valuable life lessons. Um, For example, in the first uh, book, The Blue Balloon, teaches children about friendship and about building um, connections with people. And the second book, The Many Balloons Across the World, it's a series where it teaches kids about cultures from all across the world. So for example, The Seven Continents, teaches children the different celebrations and different cultures that each culture celebrates and in the third the third book the rainbow balloon it teaches kids about equality diversity and acceptance um, from all different types of lgbtq community um, which is a valuable lesson that which today we're fighting for um, with the don't don't say gay bill Uh, so what inspired you to write these stories for me, it was during um, chemotherapy. I went through uh, chemotherapy. I had um, testicular cancer, so the, the battle with that was a very challenging battle. So during um, those sessions, I thought, what what would bring good to the world? What do I want to leave behind in the world? And it was for me, it was something that was impactful for children so to leave behind the world something that children can grow up and develop into beautiful people different like you know very diverse people and I thought let me write a book but let me start it with children's books and develop from there Um, so I had to learn everything from scratch Um, so it was a very unique process to you know learn how to how to make books and develop books illustrate them copyright and things of that nature but it was definitely a very challenging but very rewarding experience and what has the response been like so far i think it's been great like my friends and family have been you know there to support me to you know make sure that you know everything is correct from small details to um, major details for like submitting them to um, publishers and to bigger bigger outlets bigger um, stores to purchase so what concerns you about the don't say gay bill I feel that it's like a like I said in previous interviews. It's a it's a blanket. It's they're trying to cover up the LGBT community um, from learning from education, um, and it's 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 very uh, detrimental for the LGBT youth because they need to learn. They need to learn about their other people like them. Like they need to grow up and learn that it's okay to be gay and that um, they're they're just like everyone else and that there's people out there that support them and love them exactly the way they are so for anybody that says oh but those kids are too young what would you say to that i would say put yourself in their shoes like if you're going through this um i know that it's extremely hard because they don't have any resources to look up to just recently we have lgbtq and tv and and movies during during um my childhood, there was nothing to look up, look up to um, in movies or TV shows or anything of that nature. So I feel like 
even limiting them even more with literature and books and education in schools is just going to make it harder for them. And the suicide rate for LGBTQ is four times higher than any other than any other um, child. So it's extremely important that they get the resources and education and books and schools to to become better people and to become themselves and to educate others of, about the issue. How did your childhood affect uh, the stories that you told in the Blue Balloon series? I feel like Christopher in the books is a representation of me, but me to the highest power. For example, it's, it's an image of me, but me as a child learning the things that I've always wanted to learn, that I've learned throughout my life, but in a shortened version. For example, you know, Christopher learns about many different cultures, but I haven't learned that until recently. I'm I'm the age of 30, and I've learned, you know, to learn about different cultures from all around the world, to experience different dining options, food, and um, different cultures and festivals that, you know, people from around the world celebrate. And I feel like if I learned this at a young age, I would have been a lot better off than I am today. So uh, you have a new book in the series, right? Yes, it's the Christmas balloon. It's a beautiful Christmas story. I feel that Christmas was a very important time when I was growing up. Um, My parents would always love to make Christmas extra special. You know, sitting around um, Christmas time and unwrapping gifts was just like a magical moment. And, you know, watching Christmas movies and things of that nature was always very magical to me. So I wanted to educate, educate children and LGBT children, of course, as well, um, about the magic of Christmas, about the magic of giving gifts and um, sharing those moments of magic and also teaching children the history of Christmas, you know, the the deep history, the story behind Christmas in a way that um, children will understand and grow from it as well. Why is uh, representation important to you? I feel representation is very important because it shows other children and other people that it's it's okay to be themselves and to show that, you know, you can be brave, you can be inspiring, and you can show other people that it's okay to be yourself and to, to grow from the darkness. Um, there's always light and darkness, and you can always overcome obstacles if you just put the energy to be to be successful and to motivate yourself to overcome them. Uh, what would you say to your little childhood self right now? I would say to my my childhood self to always look towards the future, always be the better version of yourself, always be brave. Always look to inspire other people and to educate others and to always be open to learning new things. How has writing the Blue Balloon series helped you as a person? I think it's definitely made me research a lot deeper into cultures and to LGBT rights, into LGBTQ history, um, and also dive deep into myself, to learn about myself and to grow and to be, be open to new experiences and learning new things and working with other people to kind of bring this all together to create this series and make it come to life. 
any big takeaways you've learned about yourself? I would definitely say that I've become a stronger person through all these experiences. Um, it's definitely developed me into a better version of myself today, and it's become I've become a lot stronger than I have in the past. And um, I encourage others to do the same. Like in my books, at the end of the book, I always leave a message that says I inspire children to create stories of the mo- of their own, um, to develop you know new ideas and open the world to education about diversity, inclusion, equality, and to express themselves and be brave and be bold themselves. How can people get a copy of any of these books? Well, they're available through my website, theblueballoonseries.com. We also have a Facebook page and Instagram, and we would love for you to check them out. Is there anything that you want to say, anything that comes to mind, anything we haven't covered? I would definitely say that if you are looking for something to leave behind in the world, definitely look into it, do your research, work hard to achieve your goals, and never give up. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Emma Williams is our science editor. She joins me now. Hey, Emma. Hi, Damien. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And what's new in science this week? So this week I spoke with Sarah Dolson, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Ottawa. And we talked about her research on rove beetles and their distribution across a mountain in Costa Rica. And what exactly is a rove beetle? Uh, That's a good question. Rove beetles are this weird group of animals. They're a beetle, but they kind of look like um, earwigs and they're incredibly diverse. Um, But they are, yeah, they're they're a very diverse beetle. So it's it's sort of hard to to say. Well, very, very interesting. And uh, we were just telling everybody earlier in the show that there's going to be a fulcrum science show. Yes, there is. Can you tell me about the fulcrum science show? Yeah, so the science show is being launched very soon. And it's part of a spinoff from the main show here. And the reasoning really behind it was that we felt there was a lot of science coverage on the main show and that the science topics deserve more long form sort of conversation and look into it. And so what's this show going to be about? So this show is everything that listeners have come to expect from the main science segment, except it will include much more. Um, it will also be much longer. Like I said, there will be more of like a science deep dive versus what you had before, which is kind of more of like a science spotlight. So expect longer interviews and perhaps more explanation into some of the topics that we talk about. And so who are you speaking to on this show? So we're speaking to a lot of different people. 
in research, within the industry, and even within private sector, all who work within science. And what are some of the topics that you're going to talk about? So some of the topics we're talking about frogs and the effect of different acids on fetal development, fish stress, and bat conservation, for just just to name a few. So when does this come out? So this comes out very soon on this channel, and just keep your eyes and ears peeled for it. Well, it sounds awesome. I can't wait. Yeah, enjoy. And congrats on your new show. Thank you so much. I'm very excited. Okay. Um, can I get you to just sort of introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Sarah Dolson. I'm a PhD candidate right now at the University of Ottawa, uh, starting my fourth year, I guess. And generally, I'm kind of interested in biodiversity and how animals, but insects in particular, are distributed across the globe. Okay, so first question, why rove beetles? And like, what about them specifically helped you with your study? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty uh, typical question. Rope beetles are a very strange, weird and wonderful group of animals, um, but they're actually amazing. They're like super, super diverse. They're one of like the largest groups of animals that exists. And they're really understudied. Like we don't know names of most of them. We haven't described most of them, especially in the tropics, but they're so abundant. And so they're kind of like a perfect like model organism to be testing any sort of question about how species are distributed, but also how they're related to things like temperature and precipitation. So because they have such a wide range in, you know, their ecologies and their life histories, they just serve as like a beautiful model organism to, to look at. Okay. And then for your study specifically, were they like more susceptible to abiotic factors? So that kind of helped with your research or is that just. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that they're more susceptible. I mean, they're sort of, they would have a different relationship to abiotic factors than other insects, but that's like any group of insect is probably going to be responding to these factors differently, which is actually what I'm kind of studying for my PhD right now. But yeah, but it's more, I guess, to pick them is just because they're super diverse, super abundant, and therefore are going to respond in all sorts of ways. So I guess just kind of delving right into your research, you were, how were you able to sample these beetles and then test different a- like effects of the different abi- abiotic factors. Yeah. So uh, we sampled the beetles. So the lab that I was in, which is Dr. Alex Smith's lab at the university of Guelph, he has had a research program set up in Costa Rica for, I think the data that we had was, it was a decade of, of data, but that's continued. So it's probably like 12 or 13 years of data now. And basically we just go into the forest at all sorts of different elevations and we just look for bugs. So we set up all sorts of different traps, like pitfall traps, which are just sort of cans in the ground that insects will walk right into. Um, We have flying traps called malaise traps. Insects will fly right into them and then they crawl also into some ethanol to collect. Um, We'll sift the leaf litter like most insects. Well, a lot of insects live in leaf litter. And so we just sift through it and all the bugs fall to the bottom. And so we do that um, standardly every year, twice a year, uh, so that we have just like a 
you know, an enormous collection of beetles across years and also, um, uh, seasons. Um, and so then we take it all back to the lab and we can look to identify it. And so for kind of my main question, which was how diversity is changing with these abiotic factors, we're just identifying it, but actually maybe this is too much detail, (laughs) but actually to identify them is really tough in the tropics. Most of these things don't have names and they're not described. And so we can't do that. So we use DNA barcoding where we take, uh, a little bit of them, and then we sequence it to see how its DNA compares to another specimen. So by doing that, we can say, you know, this is a different species from this. And then to actually look at it, how it's related to abiotic factors, uh, we use kind of a combination of, we have, you know, weather markers throughout when we've been doing the sampling, but we also use publicly accessible data such as WorldClim, which are these huge global databases that have temperature and precipitation data and all sorts of other stuff. And so then we can just take that and then look at it with our diversity measurements. Okay. So you use sort of the DNA then, because I guess you can't really like sample bugs the way you do like a capture, recapture, anything like that. You can't just like tag them I wish (laughs) yeah you you had to use the DNA then as sort of your marker yeah it's it's one of really the only ways that we can sample these types of insect communities especially tropical leaf litter insect communities Um, because I mean the row of beetles that I was working with they range in size but some of them are smaller than you know the bit of lead that you have at the end of your pencil so um like you said, we can't just count them or we can't just mark them and release them. We have to actually capture them. And then to actually see what type of species it is, we have to sample it um, with their DNA. Cool. Yeah. And so you actually were able to go to Costa Rica and do this. Yeah. Yeah. I went for a season. It was really awesome. (laughs) That's so great. Can you tell me a bit about your field experience? then? Sure. So Yeah, it's in the area de conservación Guanacaste in Costa Rica, which is northwestern Costa Rica. Um, And it has three kind of big volcanoes in it. And so we work on one of the volcanoes called Volcán Cacao. And it goes from essentially right at sea level, like right at the beach to 1500 meters high. And uh, it's really amazing place because at the tops of these volcanoes or mountains, you have these tropical montane cloud forests, which are really wet and actually pretty cold. It probably doesn't get lower than like 15, but because it's so wet, it feels freezing up there. And then you go down to the beach, which is like extremely hot and extremely dry. And so you have just this amazing range that you can, you know, go from the bottom to the top in a day. But so, yeah, when we're there, um, we're staying in these nice little shacks. It's pretty good. Uh, But we all, you know, we, we take all our stuff, these huge barrels of collection materials, and then we hike to, you know, whatever elevation that we want to go to, sometimes the top of the elevation. And then we just sit there and we dig around for bugs. What were the results then of your study? So when you look at um, insect elevation studies, you see all sorts of different responses. And there's a few kind of common ones. Um, and actually it goes for all animals. So sometimes that we see that insect will insect richness will decrease with elevation because obviously as you're getting to the tops of these mountains the conditions become less favorable for kind of anything to exist and sometimes you would see that 
richness peaks right in the middle of elevations. This is for a variety of factors, but these are kind of the common uh, patterns that we find. We found sort of the opposite where we found the highest richness. So the highest diversity of these beetles right at the tops of the mountains. Hmm. So that means that across this whole gradient, they're super abundant and super diverse right at the tops of the mountains, these like harshest environments. And it's neat because often these, you know, high elevations you think of as like desolate places. Um, And sometimes in the tropics too, um, these montane cloud forests, you know, they're not that well studied. They're sort of these little islands in the sky that aren't accessed very often, but you know, this study shows that they're super full of life. And it's also a little spooky because the highest elevations are pretty susceptible to changes that we're going to see with climate change. Um, Like as these areas get warmer, there's a predicted upslope movement in sort of everything. So um, in all the plants and animals, they're expecting them to move up just as they get hotter. And so these colder areas at the top, they have nowhere else to go. And so these rove beetles and likely all sorts of other things that are really abundant up there they're at risk of being extirpated uh, just because mm. they have nowhere further up to go. And did you find out maybe why these beetles were more abundant in higher elevations? Like, was it just a fact that they liked wetter, colder environments? Or is this like an evolution? This like yeah. evolution they wanted? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I get it. <laughs> it's a tricky thing to talk about. <laughs> um, so... I mean, they were they were pretty closely related to both temperature and precipitation. And so they obviously like a little bit more precipitation and they obviously like a little bit colder environments. Um, but these are a little bit harder to test because it's hard to just take that association and remove it from, you know, any other environmental factor. But um, besides that, yeah, one of the things we kind of hypothesized was that we also thought it could be sort of longer term evolutionary history of these beetles being most diverse in these sort of cloud foresty environments, because at one point this environment like existed sort of everywhere, like at the last glacial maxima. So we're talking thousands of years ago, um, but this environment covered everything. So it's possible that as these environments have just, you know, shrunk and shifted up, that so have the rove beetles, they've just kind of tracked this environment as well. So this is sort of the last existing little island that they're part of. So that's, that's what we hypothesize. I mean, it's hard to obviously prove those kinds of things in order to do that. It would take a lot more genetic work. So a lot more work with their DNA sequence them a little bit more, which would be possible and pretty cool. I think some of the upcoming work with this project, will start looking at them with sort of thermal tolerances and we can try to investigate those questions a little bit further. I think that pretty much concludes the interview. Is there anything else that we didn't get to touch on that you want to add? Um, I would say that, uh, just insects are the best and rove beetles are really cool. <laughs> Everybody else should study them. <laughs> uh, actually, what, uh, if you could describe maybe like what are rove beetles and, you know, what makes them unique? Sure. Yeah. So well, the unique thing, what makes a rove beetle, a rove beetle is they have really short elytra. So how do I maybe say this in layman's terms? They're like, um, if you think about a beetle and they're really strong and really armored, uh, rove beetles actually have that armor on the back is really short. And so they have exposed abdomen. And so they're kind of weird looking mm. like um, they sort of look like earwigs, but they exist a lot of the time in leaf litter from, you know, temperate to tropical environments all across the globe. 
They're really diverse in terms of their ecology. So some of them are total symbionts. They really need to, you know, some of them like only exist with ants. Some of them, you know, they only feed off of like dead leaf litter. Some of them are predatory. They fill like so many different kinds of ecological niches. They're all over the place. Wow. That's awesome. I didn't, I honestly didn't know about them before I read your study. So I know it's weird, right? Like it's, you think about, I don't know, because I'm an insect person, there's other groups of insects that you think about being like a lot more prominent, but nobody thinks about the rove beetles. (laughs) Well, maybe they will though. (laughs) Yeah, maybe they will. (laughs) They'll all see. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day to meet with me. Awesome. Thank thank you you so much. Yeah, it was very nice meeting you. Yeah, super nice to meet you. Here with the latest of what's happening with the GGs. You know her as the Fulcrum Sports Editor. Now she is one half of next year's Editor-in-Chief's Jasmine McKnight. Ah yes, hello. It is playoff season, and a lot is happening for U of O teams, so let me catch you up on a few things. The GGs are transitioning into their postseason games now, and the men's basketball team is patiently waiting to see who their opponent will be for Saturday's OUA East semifinal. After finishing the season 13-3, the team is in a great position to make a run. As for the women... Their last pair of regular season games were canceled due to Laurentian's COVID-19 protocols, but the G's still had their chance to play the Voyagers on Wednesday night, winning the first round playoff matchup 78-39 to in front of the home crowd. Bridget Lefebvre-Conquou played an incredible game, dropping 23 points. Here's what she had to say after the game. Uh, it was super important uh, for the whole team, for my fellow seniors, and also for the people that come support us uh, every game. So we really wanted to give them the best game possible, and I think that's what we did, so I'm really happy. And then I'm just kind of wondering how you're feeling moving forward in this playoff situation. I'm feeling really good. Uh, we've had some uh, little games that we kind of let go, but like I feel the rhythm is really getting better, and I'm really confident for this game Saturday. Carlton, be, be ready because we're coming. <laughs> On Saturday, the GGs are headed to the Ravens' Nest for the OUA East semifinal matchup. The teams have met twice in the regular season, splitting results, so it's sure to be a spicy one. GG's head coach, Rose Anjoli, had great things to say about Lefebvre Conku's performance, as well as the team's upcoming game. I'm not surprised with our slow first half. Uh, but you could tell that Bridget was caring from the moment the game was started until the end. She never looked as athletic as she did today. She was awesome, and we're very happy that um, she bounced back for this game. Yeah, can you kind of just talk about like what it was like at halftime and then coming out and being way more explosive in the second half of the game? It's, it's just to remind them that, that this is our game, this is who we are, and we weren't us ourselves in the first half. We needed to run the floor. We needed to play through a post, which we still didn't really do. We relied on a lot of shots, but we relied on second possessions. We had a lot of um, opportunities with seconds, with rebounds, offensive rebounds. 
but it's it's always the same speech. We know who we are. We haven't changed anything from, since the beginning because of COVID and everything else. So it's just to play our game, right? That's all. The difference is that we've seen them twice this year, so we're going to be ready to fight. I know they will fight, so the team who will fight the hardest will win that one. But it's exciting to play that game, semis against a rivalry team. On the ice, less success. The men's hockey team headed to Nipissing for their first playoff game. 4 nothing loss. Not much to say. The women's team is out of contention for the championship, but has the opportunity to play in the RSEQ bronze medal bracket. Their first opponent is Bishop's University, and the GGs need to win the best of three series in order to continue on. That's everything right now. So enjoy your St. Patrick's Day festivities. I'll be in Waterloo with the women's ultimate team for our final tournament of the year, four and four nationals. So please keep all our GG teams in your thoughts. It's the most intense time of the year for many teams. And for some seniors, these games mark the last time we'll see them in the garnet and gray. So that's that. Stay hydrated. Get good sleeps. Thank you guys for listening to me throughout this uh, podcast of ours. Um, I've enjoyed keeping you up to date on GG Sports this whole time. And I'm looking forward to hopefully being able to keep up with the sports segment, but also fulfilling my half of the editor-in-chief duties. Again, thank you so much, and we'll see what's up next year. Until next time. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this show from this week and throughout the whole year. Our fearless editor-in-chief, the outgoing Mr. Charlie Dutil, who originally thought that the Fulcrum should have a podcast. Outgoing multimedia director Haley Otten is taking over Charlie's job alongside Jasmine McKnight. Haley made our show's art. And she does a whole lot more than that. Jasmine brought us sports updates for University of Ottawa athletes who are decked out in garnet and gray. Amira Benjamin brought us a spectacular segment highlighting women in politics. Sanjita Rashid was there in the very beginning to help get us off the ground. Shaley Shaw saved Besserer Park. She will forever be a part of the first segment we ever recorded for this show. Desiree Nickfarjum read us a lot of headlines. Heck, even our managing editor, Allie Murphy, did too. Zoe Mason made it here once. She brought us the story of Vincent Adon. Social Media by Yelena Maric. Gabrielle Musichka joined us a little late in the year, but she dove right into the news, and we loved having her here. Special shout-out to our two guest readers today, Sophie Long and Mariana Gomez. Lastly, Emma Williams deserves more credit than anybody for her contributions in writing to the paper version of The Fulcrum. Uh, her talents cross both audio and 
and print as she continues to deliver amazing conversations with some of the best in science and research. The Fulcrum Science Show, coming soon. Music and sound design by the great Cameron Rankin. Thank you very much, Cam. This show wouldn't have been anything without him. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper, signing off for now.